Father, we thank You this morning for what You have done for us. How You have called us out of darkness into Your marvelous light. And Lord, this morning as we we will all be challenged, I just pray that You will open our minds and our hearts to hear Your voice and that You would be honored and glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. You notice our text is chapter 5, but I'd like to begin by reading Ephesians 4 verses 17 through 19. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from light, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. As I read that passage, I am greatly encouraged. And that is that in the years since Paul penned those words, mankind has greatly improved. We have progressed upward in our on our moral evolutionary scale. Because it's very obvious as we look around us, what Paul is describing is of his own backward culture and it no longer reflects our own. Amen? Uh-uh. Not a chance. An emphatic no. Matter of fact, if you were to ask me for my own personal opinion, I would say it's gotten worse, not better. Many of your Bibles have titles that for a section in the Scripture. And probably most of yours have something like this in chapter 4, these verses. Living as children of light. Paul here is comparing the life of the believer to those who are not. And he makes it clear in verse 17 that he's not giving this as a suggestion, but in fact, he insists on it in the Lord that we are no longer to live as Gentiles. We're Gentiles. But in his mind, the Gentiles were outside of the family of God. So that's who he's talking about. So we're talking about those who are inside and those who are outside. And he insists that we are no longer to live as they do. Recently, Ruth and I were in the checkout line at Walmart with our load of groceries and we started putting them on the belt and there was a customer ahead of us and they were just finishing up. And this little boy, probably about 10, he weaseled his way through past us and he got in front of us and he just stood there waiting next in line. He kind of looked at us like, 
am I okay? And uh, he had a candy bar in one hand and two $1 bills in the other. And he was just hoping to get through. And well, that's fine. You know, we, we can wait. What was interesting is his mother came up and she was standing behind us. And they were actually from the country of Dubai. And they were in Cincinnati at the hospital there. The little boy was supposed to have some sort of treatment. So they were in the Hocking Hills for a couple of days. Anyway, so Ruth engaged in conversation with the mother. And the little boy, he's waiting. And then the mother says, Muhammad, come. I believe his name was Muhammad. That They're all Muhammad, right? Anyway, so he, they're not. But I think that's what his name was. Anyway, she said, come. And, and he said, no. And so Ruth, as being the motherly type, she looked at the little boy and said, you need to obey your mother. And his response was, she's only making a suggestion. (laughs) Well, let me tell you one thing. That little boy has a rough road ahead in life if he lives with that kind of an attitude. To Gentiles, those outside of the fold, and way too often those inside the fold, Christians, we consider, we can consider the clear teaching of Scripture as suggestion. And Paul says, no. He is making it very clear that there are only two types of people in this world. There are saved and there are lost. There are wise and they are un- there are unwise. There are those who are dark-minded and those who are light-minded. There are no, those who are ignorant and those who are enlightened. You get the idea. Just, it's, there's this contrast. As I thought through this this week, a word came to my mind, and I haven't heard this word in a long time, but I can, I can still hear my dad using this word. In describing our salvation, the word is being converted. We don't talk, we don't ask. I remember, I can hear my dad ask, you know, have you ever been converted? It's an old, I guess an old word. We use words like being saved or born again or redeemed. And as I thought through that, I... I've come to the conclusion, I think we need to be careful that we can't, that we don't fall into the mindset that all that has really happened when we get saved, or we get born again, or we're redeemed, or in our song, as Marvin led us, ransomed, that in many times our minds can go, well, we have just, our place of final destination has changed. We were destined for hell and now we're destined for heaven. But the word converted describes something different. Something has changed about us. More than just our destination. Last Sunday, Marvin's sermon title was Take Care. We need to take care. Paul is saying, be very careful that we don't fall into that mindset. 
Because being converted means the way we think, the way we act, has to change. He insists on it. And sadly for many, it doesn't. Most of your vehicles that you drive, I think most of mine do, still have a catalytic converter. Now, I don't know what a catalytic is. It's not a Cadillac, I can tell you that. A catalytic converter, and James could answer this better than any of us, but from what I understand, it takes, it takes these, these noxious fumes and then the burning of this terrible fossil fuel that we burn, and it takes those poisons and it turns them into water vapor. It converts them into something that isn't as dangerous. I don't drink the water that drips out of your tailpipe, but that's essentially, it turns it into water vapor. It's something has radically changed. It's been converted. Paul continues by describing these Gentiles, those who are not converted, nothing has changed, and the futility of their thinking. I really hope that Ben Crumless would be here this morning, but a week before last, he and I were up on Jim and Melissa's new property, and we were attempting to free a skid steer that had gotten itself hopelessly stuck. Ben tried his best. He got on that, and it was sitting like this, and it was in the mud, and he would, he would spin this track, then he'd spin this track, then he'd spin both tracks, and then he'd go backwards, and then he'd take the bucket and try to dig him out, and then push himself out. And you know what was happening? He just kept getting deeper and deeper into the mud. That is a picture of futility, all right? Everything he did was futile. There was no way he was going to get that machine unstuck. That's a picture that Paul gives. The futile thinking of humanity is the farther we go, the worse it gets. The farther we dig ourselves into the hole. And so is the mind of the unconverted, sinking further and further into the quicksand of sin. In the banking industry, we talk about, there's a term called compound interest. We really like compound interest, don't we? But how often do we think about compound sin? Rarely, if ever. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes this progression of this, of unregenerate humanity. He says, for although they knew God, so they had a knowledge of God, that's where it started. Because God has put that in all of us. They had this knowledge. But then they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They kept digging themselves deeper and deeper into this pit of sin. Sin debt. Compound sin. And as a result, Paul says, God gives them over. Because of their persistence, He gives them over to all the perversion that we see all around us. We hear about it. It's not only practiced, it's promoted, it's celebrated. 
But now it's not only just, as we think about compound sin, it's not just living a certain way, but now there's this, this crazy confusion and it's turned into mutilation. Physical mutilation. And anybody who is against that is in trouble. This should not surprise us at all. It is normal because of the futility of our thinking. If we think that sin won't take you farther and farther and farther into the pit, you are deceived. That's how the world thinks. Paul says we are to be different. Radically different in how we think. But more importantly, how we act. Our actions. So go to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. And as Paul goes on through chapter 4 of Ephesians, the verses I read, and then he, and then he goes through more details about how we are supposed to be, how the world is, he contrasts the two. And then in chapter 5 and verse 17, because of all of that, Paul says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Can you put that picture on the screen, please? You remember this picture? And there were some that were played... They've. The pictures except this one have all vanished. I don't know why. But there's one, these are 21, 20 Coptic Christian men. They're Coptic Christians from Egypt, or from Libya, actually. And one was from Ghana. They were led by ISIS to the Mediterranean Sea. They were knelt on the beach and their heads were cut off. Why? Because they were believers in Jesus. That's the only reason. None of us are likely to give our lives like they did. But we are to give our lives. Paul says to be very careful. Just leave that picture up there. And what's interesting about that, there are pictures, and, and some, and there was a video that they videotaped this whole thing, and so people, you know, were able to snap out of that. But the, the water in the ocean ran red from their blood. Paul says, be very careful. As Marvin said last week, take care. We are to give thought in how we are to live. We are to be deliberate. We are to be intentional. We are to guard our steps. One commentator I read, the word that Paul uses there is is a picture of, and he used this illustration, of a cat walking through glass. Every footstep, very careful and deliberate. That's the picture we're to get. Be very careful how we live, how we walk. Now, we may not give our lives with one slash of the knife, but we're to give it with many small acts of service and sacrifice. 
I want us to look at Jeremiah this morning as, as an example for us. Jeremiah was one who was called by God to declare God's message to a people that similarly were what we just read about in Ephesians 4. Our own kind of culture. These were the Jewish people, but they had gone off the rails. And so Jeremiah was sent to them. In his book, his prophecy was, was, he prophesied over the course of 40 years. Essentially his whole life. And those were not pleasant years. The message he brought was not pleasant. They were the years that were leading up to the destruction of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and the taking captive or the killing of its people and being taken to Babylon. One writer writes that Jeremiah's life as a prophet was a long, sad, stormy day. Even his friends and relatives plotted to kill him. He lived his whole life proclaiming faithfully God's message. He gave his life daily in doing that. And it's even believed that at the end of his life, he died by stoning in Egypt because of his message. Think of that. Jeremiah chapter 1. I'm going to read 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3. The words of Jeremiah the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Well, that just seems... There's just a lot of stuff going on. Those are important details. It's interesting. The literal meaning of the name Jeremiah means God throws. Isn't that interesting? Kind of a picture of his life. We would say, the world would say, he threw his life away. No, he threw his life in the hands of God. Whether he wanted to or not, he did it. But notice that it says that he was the son of Hilkiah, who was one of the priests from the town of Anathoth. And he began prophesying during the reign of Josiah. Those are all important details. We need to back up a minute. And let's go to 2 Kings chapter 22. Now Josiah was king. We know lots of Josiahs. We know one. I know one. <laughs> How many of you are eight years old? If you're eight years old, come up front. I need you to stand out front. Any eight-year-olds? Stand up here on this next to the top shelf. Just four of you? Okay, well, this morning, we're going to make one of you king. Um, what that means is that we are going to bow down to you. We're going to pay taxes to you. We're going to obey your every command. We're going to call you king. Now, how does that sound to you? 
I guess I should stand down here. You like the sound of that? No? Long live King Everly. Come on. Long. Why not? What could go wrong? <laughs> Think of it. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Now, I know their parents. And I think they probably could do a fairly, well, they could do a really good job in comparison to some others, but the fact is, they could probably do a fairly decent job because of their advisors. Okay, you can go sit down. Long live the kings. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Josiah was eight years old. But that was the situation that Israel was in. Josiah became king because his father had been assassinated. Who had been the king? He was king for two years. His advisor assassinated him. And the people put Josiah. They threw this eight-year-old out there. Now you be our king. But verse 2 of 2 Kings 22 says, Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. How was it possible that he could do that? He had a really, really good mother. (laughs) He had to. And the people, the advisors that surrounded him were good people. They didn't like what had gone on before. They had been converted. Something had happened to them. They wanted things to be different. So then verse 3. Now when Josiah was 26, any 26-year-olds? I won't make you come up. No 26-year-olds? 25-year-olds? Man, okay. So when Josiah was 26 years old, he goes to Hilkiah. Hmm, that name sound familiar? The high priest, to have him get a hold of Wayne the treasurer because it's time to start a rebuilding, remodeling project. I see this is providential. <laughs> they were going to start working on the temple. And so Josiah calls Hilkiah. He said, I want you to go to the treasury. I want you to start. We're going to pay the workmen. We're going to start this project. And then I think we know the story. As they started, they found the the law and all that. Hilkiah was the high priest. I think it was Jeremiah's dad. The timing is right. There's not total agreement on that. What it means is that Jeremiah, if Hilkiah, this man, was his father... He was in line to be priest. In fact, the town of Anathoth was one of the priest cities. It was three miles from Jerusalem. So living in Jerusalem, Jeremiah would, and his dad working in the temple as a priest and, you know, knowing all the things that were going on, he heard it all, and, but he was far enough removed that he wasn't, you know, it wasn't a daily thing probably. But he, but he knew what was happening. But Jeremiah, was in fact, he was in line to be a priest. He was destined to be somebody important. His future was set. He would serve in the temple. He would be respected by the people, whether they wanted to or not. His dad was the high priest. 
Jeremiah didn't need to try to figure out what his career path would be. It was all set. And it would be a fairly comfortable one. But God had something different in mind for Jeremiah. Let me read verses 4 through 7 in Jeremiah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me, this is Jeremiah speaking, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. God had determined before Jeremiah was ever born what his job would be. He was predestined, we would say, as a prophet not only to Israel and to Judah, but to the nations. But Jeremiah said he protested. I'm only a youth. I'm too young. And I can't speak well. And God says to Jeremiah, don't say that. (laughs) Never make excuses to God when He calls. Never. We are to walk carefully. That means that when God says jump, we don't say why. We just say how high. We can't start thinking of reasons why we can't jump. Using jumping as the analogy or the metaphor as we talked about in Sunday school. He wouldn't ask us to jump if He didn't think we could jump. He wouldn't ask us to do something if He didn't think we could do it. But the fact is, I don't like to jump. I just like to sit and relax. I'm sure you're not that way. Or jumping isn't my gift. And I didn't sign up for the jumping team. I guess you should have read the fine print. As a redeemed, converted child of God, we march or we jump to His orders and not the other way around. So walking carefully. No Christian can live in obscurity. There should never be a question as to if we are a Christian by the way we live or the words that come out of our mouths. If you are a Christian this morning and claim the name of Christ, you live on a pedestal. Jesus said of those who are His followers in Matthew chapter 5, He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You are a lamp in the house. You are meant to be seen and heard. Philippians chapter 2, 14 Paul writes, do everything that God asks you to do without grumbling or arguing. I don't like those two words because that's my tendency to grumble and to argue. He says, don't 
grumble and argue so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Think of that. Stars are always shining. The stars are shining right now, but we can't see them. You can only see stars when it's dark, and the darker it gets, the brighter they shine. Paul says, we are like stars in the sky. In Ephesians 5, he tells us to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And in order for that to happen, it requires thought, it requires purpose, and it requires determination. I started to dig a little bit when I read this, because the days are evil. And I thought, I wonder what Paul meant by that, the days are evil. He uses the word poneros. And you know what poneros is? That's the root word from which we get our word pornographic. Isn't that interesting? It's like Paul wrote this yesterday, but he didn't. But, this sounds kind of dark, right? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8. God says to Jeremiah, Do not be afraid of them, those that he is sending him to, those he is sending him to. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. And I'm sure Jeremiah breathed a sigh of relief. But then he may have thought, well, wait a minute. Except, why would I tend to be afraid of them? God tells me, don't be afraid of them. That means that I'm, my tendency is going to be afraid of them. Why, why is he going to rescue me? You don't get rescued unless you need rescued. Unless things go badly. And then verse 9, Then the Lord reached out His hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Lord, Kingdoms and nations don't particularly enjoy being uprooted and destroyed and overthrown. This might be a little bit offensive to them. Sin and sinners never like being exposed. It's always offensive. But God says, that's my word. That's what you got to tell them. The Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, one of repentance and conversion, is, as Paul said elsewhere, offensive to the Jews and nonsense to the Gentiles. But in our day, it's not just nonsense, it's offensive to everyone. Get used to it. Verse 10. 
in Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah has been prophesying for 25 years. He's been faithful to God's message, doing what God told him to do, saying the words he told him to speak. And people aren't liking it. The message of surrender is not popular in any generation. So in chapter 20, we we read that there's this guy named Pasher. He's the chief, chief temple officer. And he heard Jeremiah saying these things. And so his response was, hmm, we need to think about that. No, he had him beaten and put in stocks and thrown into prison. Jeremiah is beginning to feel the pressure. It seems like for many years, Jeremiah has been ridiculed, he's been laughed at, but now it's getting physical. And this is just the beginning of his troubles. It's one thing to be called bad names and ignored, but when we start to feel the pain, that's different. And then verse 7. One of Jeremiah's complaints. Lord, you coerced me into being a prophet. And I allowed you to do it. You overcame my resistance and prevailed over me. Now I have become a constant laughingstock. Everyone ridicules me. For whenever I prophesy, prophesy, I must cry out, Violence and destruction are coming. This message from the Lord has made me an object of continual insults and derision. In fact, he's feeling so bad that in verse 14, he even wishes that he had never been born. That he would have died in his mother's womb. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? And so in verse 9, He says, sometimes I think I will make no mention of his message. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. It's just too hard. It's too dangerous. I'm just not going to do it. Because everything I seem to do that is for the good, it backfires. People don't want to hear it. They don't want my help. They just, it backfires. And he says, I'm done with it. I will not speak as his messenger anymore. Then he says, but then his message, God's message, becomes like a fire locked up inside of me, burning in my heart and soul. I grow weary of trying to hold it in. I cannot contain it. (laughs) And he didn't contain it. He kept proclaiming God's message year after year after year, no matter the consequences. So in our day, we may not be put in stocks. We may not be beaten. We may not be thrown into a muddy pit as he was. We may be laughed at and ridiculed as ignorant or worse. But our actions, as the saying goes, speak louder than words. Jesus warned us that in this life, those who follow him will not always have an easy path. We will be inconvenienced. 
Evangelism, telling other people about the Lord Jesus is extremely important. It's what we are called to do. It's what we are all called to do. It's more than mere words. It's actions. Thank you, Nancy, for putting the word abide in our bulletin. It's to affect the way we think and the way we act when we abide in Him. Inconvenient acts of self-sacrifice and service. Sometimes those things are very, very difficult. And I think of some of you who are going through some very, very difficult times that are life-changing. My heart goes out to you. Thursday, Dylan and I were coming home from Aaron's yard and not his nice manicured yard. The junky one, the one I love. I could live there. Well, maybe not. But Dylan and I were coming home and we're traveling down 33 with a load of wood and all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. I thought it was a flat tire. It was, we weren't so fortunate. So as we sat along Route 33 for three hours waiting for a tow truck, I had time to think. I was working on this sermon about inconvenience and service and and the Lord, you're not even funny. (laughs) Every opportunity. You know, there were six rollbacks that went by and never even stopped. Shame on them. But anyway, so as we sat there beside the road, I thought to myself, well, how am I going to make the best of every opportunity? So it gave Dylan and I a chance to sit there and to have a good conversation. It also gave me an opportunity to think about, now there's this tow truck driver that's coming, and I'm going to ride from Diley Road all the way to my house, and I'm going to be with this tow truck driver. And what? how do I want that conversation? I want that to lead somewhere important. So it gave me time to think about that. And then Daniel and Lincoln picked up Dylan and brought him home. And I waited some more time for the truck to come. As I talked to that tow truck driver, tried to start the conversation and steer it to spiritual directions. His goal in life is just to make money. That's what he said. Just to make money. Single, no family. I just want to make money. So as we got home and we're about to, he was about to leave, he shook my hand and, and I asked him, I said, how can I pray for you? And he said these words, that I wouldn't lose my mind. He's living in futility. He's already lost his mind. He needs to find the Lord Jesus. So that's what my prayer is. Every opportunity. It was so inconvenient. There was a million other things I'd rather have done. And now i got to fix the truck. (laughs) That's even worse. 
It's the story of my life. Anyway, sorry, that's grumbling and complaining. Maybe you noticed the sermon title. Anybody notice that this morning? The Jesus Idol? And what I mean by that is this. The people in Jeremiah's day, and we've been studying through Ezekiel in Sunday school, they were serving God, right? They were going to the temple every Sabbath. They were offering the sacrifices that God demanded. They, they did what they were supposed to do, but their heart was far from it. They could have cared less. They just wanted to get back to business. They just wanted to get back to normal life. They took little pleasure in worship. It didn't affect the rest of their week. And I suspect a lot of them felt it's just kind of an inconvenience. They were treating God like an idol. Doing just enough so that they wouldn't lose that get-out-of-jail-free card. Think about that. I just don't want to go to hell. I mean, I don't. And nobody else does either. So just what does it take to just stay out of hell? There are many today who, I would say, by actions, things they support, are in a similar state. Oh, we love Jesus. But the Bible... It's just a suggestion. And I think we can treat Jesus as an idol. Just use Him when we need Him. We kind of sit Him on the shelf. And I was actually going to get a Jesus bobblehead, what I think is sacrilegious, but, but I didn't want to spend 50 bucks. And then what would I have done with it later? But anyway, they make them. You can put them on your dash. We can treat Him like an idol. Just call on Him when we need Him or when we want something. But what does James say that pure religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is? It's action. He says to look after orphans and widows, the nobodies in society, the people that need us. and in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, I'm amazed <laughs> this week how many times Mike Bender was inconvenienced. I need converted. And I suspect a lot of the other rest of us do too. We need to think about, we need to walk carefully. We need to be deliberate. Lord, you've put me in this world to do something. Now what do you want me to do? That's how we figure out his, what His will is. 